0: This is Climate Positive, a show featuring candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate-positive future.
1: I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. If you want Congress to do something. You have to make a public interest argument. And I think in the past, you know, some of the legacy autos didn't want to talk about pollution or emissions or public health because that reflected poorly on the other 98% of their business model. And I think a lot of the EV community kind of grew to this level where they needed their own voice. Joe Britton is the executive director
0: of the Zero Emission Transportation Association, or ZETA. Zeta is a federal coalition focused on advocating for 100% EV sales by 2030. They are committed to enacting policies that drive EV adoption, create hundreds of thousands of jobs, secure American global EV manufacturing dominance, drastically improve public health, and significantly reduce carbon pollution. In this episode, I talk with Joe about what he learned from his experience working on climate policy for so many years on the Hill, how politics have changed for climate change, and what that might mean for passing a massive and important new clean energy incentives package to deal with emissions. Of course, we also talked at length about the future of transportation and the top policy priorities at Zeta. We spoke about the key consumer selling points for EVs and charging, and how to overcome common misperceptions out there in the marketplace. I'm a big fan of EVs, having done some work early in my career in that space, and I also love talking policy, especially with straight shooting pros like Mr. Joe Britton. So with that, here's my conversation with Joe. I hope you dig it. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions for over 30 years. To learn more about our climate positive journey, please visit hannonarmstrong.com.
1: Joe, welcome to Climate Positive. Thanks, Gil. Glad to be here.
0: Well, we like to start these shows by taking a deep dive into our guest's journey into the climate space Um, Can you take us through your time, you know, largely on the Hill and and how you came to focus on these issues?
1: Yeah. So I started back in 2003 with my home state senator, which is, as you know, kind of a norm in Washington, right out of college, went to University of Virginia. And I had good career advice uh, from our career services at UVA. And they said, you know, a lot of times people want to go home over Christmas and these congressional staff, you know, not everybody can go home because somebody's got a man in the office. And so they made the good point is that you should call and volunteer for one of your home state you know, representatives or senators. And And I happened to call on the day that they were drawing straws of who couldn't go home for Christmas. So I went up and met with Senator Nelson's chief of staff, a guy named Tim Becker, a really good guy. And he handed me the key and said, we'll see you in 30 days. Don't screw anything up.
0: <laughs> and then uh, – so you did that for about five years. You were in L.A. and you moved all the way up to deputy chief of staff.
1: Yeah, for Mark Udall. I moved over to Mark Udall's office in 09. And really, so, you know, Ben Nelson was, he's a huge outdoorsman, a big conservationist. But there's different pockets of the climate world. You know, it's clean air, clean water, uh, land use. And Nelson was a big conservationist. Not really did I get full, you know, throttle into climate until I got to Mark Udall's office. And Senator Udall, you know, the Udall family, there's just a, a famed history, as most people know. But Mark's wife, Maggie Fox, was also Al Gore's chief of staff at Climate Reality. And, and we were then pretty tied into the entire climate space. And so really starting in 2009 was when each and every day was spent working on climate and hasn't changed since. So for our listeners, you know, 2009, if you work in the
0: climate policy space, uh, an ominous period where Waxman-Markey, the last attempt before the most current attempt at a major piece of climate legislation was happening. assume you worked on on that and any, any perspectives from that yeah. uh, tough
1: period? So the interesting thing, you know, I think Waxman-Markey failed because of the politics in the sense that members were leery of whether this was going to hurt them in the election. I think now, I don't think, you know, anybody's terribly... Fearful about the political consequences of climate action, I think the public is behind Congress now. It's really the will, and I think that's you know partly you know policy disagreements between the White House and Senator Manchin and a few others, but you know also with, you know some of it's personal. Like I you know I don't think there's a single member that wouldn't love to have an additional feather in their cap, then go take the voters and say, hey, you know, we've done something really meaningful and solved a big problem on your behalf. You know, that's, it's no longer what it was. I think, you know, 12 years ago, you know, there was a sense of, gosh, you know, are the oil and gas politics going to catch me from behind? And I just don't think that exists anymore.
0: We can take some measure of hope in that. After Udall, you went to another great uh, Western Democrat. You were chief of staff for Senator Martin Heinrich from New Mexico. Tell us about why you made that switch and, and how you worked with one of our greatest climate champions in the Senate.
1: Yeah. So Senator Heinrich's office was right next to Senator Udall's. Oh, okay. There's more detail to it, but I kind of joked that it was an arranged marriage between the Udall's <laughs> because obviously Senator Heinrich's counterpart in the Senate was Tom Udall, who was Mark Udall's sure. cousin. But ultimately it was you know Martin and Mark Udall's offices were next door to each other in the Senate, uh, Hart Senate office building. But after Mark lost his reelect in 2014, I went to go work for Secretary Vilsack. And so in the secretary's office, I was, you know, managing the forest service, the natural resource conservation service, the farm service agency for the secretary. And those were kind of Martin's, you know, bread and butter mm-hmm. issues. And so when he was looking for a new chief, we hit it off for a number of reasons. But, you know, a lot of it was the policy and the conservation priorities that kind of drove us both. And, and so I, I ultimately wasn't with Secretary Vilsack. For all that long, which I regretted in a way because I loved – he's he's one of the more, I think, thoughtful, brilliant public figures that I've ever seen and worked with. He's really good on messaging. He gets the politics. He, he runs an enormous department as if it's like on the back of his hand. He just knows every corner. That's right. That's why he came back to run it. And again. Yeah. Again. Yeah. So he, I really respected Vilsack and he actually – did Me a real solid because I was torn. I was, you know, Senator Heinrich had asked me to go back and be his chief of staff. And, you know, I think as a general rule, if a senator asks you to be their chief of staff, you, you're trying to find a way to say yes. But I was torn because I really appreciated uh, Secretary Vilsack and working with him. And I was right outside Secretary Vilsack's office. It was me, his scheduler, and then Vilsack. You know, I saw him every hour, every day. I had this other job opportunity. I wasn't thrilled with necessarily that our chief of staff let him in on it. Uh, Brian was he's a good guy, but he'd told Vilsack. And so Vilsack came and he sat down, uh, sat at my desk and was like, hey, I get it. You'd be a fool not to do it. So anyway, I went back to the Senate and worked with uh, Senator Heinrich for five years. And he's a really unique member. I think part of the benefits – uh, being a younger member of the Senate, you know, really accrue to Senator Heinrich. He's, he can cover an issue. He doesn't work on anything that he doesn't know really, really well. And that puts him at a distinct advantage over, you know, members that, you know, may spread themselves too thin or, you know, maybe just, you know, when you're – 80, you know, may not be able to cover the policy terrain like a 40-year-old. And Senator Heinrich is just, he's an action-oriented guy. Nothing stands in his way. Um, He's going to fight for things that he really wants and believes in. And and that's great for staff because, you know, if you have an opportunity to have a member who's going to be fully immersed and engaged in your issues, you know, I almost couldn't Even get through a sentence talking to Martin about kind of a critical issue without him picking up the phone and calling the White House or calling the cabinet secretary or calling the head of an organization. Like he's just so action oriented. And that can be, you know, just a huge advantage in a body where, you know, I think sometimes the maintenance of the job kind of gets in people's way. So, what did you learn?
0: You talked about, you know, some of the key traits and lessons from working with Senator Heinrich. What'd you learn from all your bosses on the Hill and in, in the agencies? Any, any things you take with you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've learned a lot from each. And I think, said, you know, Martin, he just doesn't take no for an answer. And there's a huge advantage to that. With Mark Udall, it was the importance of taking the long view. Mark was at his best when he was trying to pull people together, people with disparate viewpoints. Um, and in some ways, he measured success. Not in, you know, legislative terms or amendments, but whether, you know, the level of civility was improved by his engagement and part of a debate. Like that was the most important thing for him. And so huge lessons to be drawn there, maybe the ones that I wish I'd soak in more often. (laughs) Uh, But then with Ben Nelson, you know, it's almost like the bully pulpit. And I, I'm actually shocked that more members don't do this, you know, and we certainly try. And again, the maintenance of the job can get in the way. You've got so much incoming and scheduling requests and hearings and votes and speeches and just the demands kind of, you know, sometimes can be an impediment to doing the highest value work. So Ben Nelson was really good at this. If there was an issue, you know, I think you and I probably have issues every week that we read and we're like, God, that can't be true. Like, how are we stuck in this vortex? Ben Nelson would say, all right, I'm going to invite eight senators over for lunch and we're going to talk about it." And it could be bipartisan, could have been all Republicans, could have been all Democrats. Uh, and, and it was actually interesting. In those days, Ben Nelson, you know, CEQ used to do their political rankings. So right. who's more conservative or progressive than others? Ben Nelson oftentimes was more conservative than several Republicans in the Senate. So he had in some huh. ways the license to really reach into either caucus. And he was close with Schumer and he, you know, he was somebody that was, you know, reflective of the state, but you know, tried to have some fealty to what was good for the team, but you know, he could reach into either the Republican caucus or the Democratic caucus and pull people together and say, hey, this doesn't make sense. Can we figure out a way to get through this? So you left
0: Senator Heinrich's office in was it 19 or right
1: at the basically right when COVID was setting in. Right when yeah. COVID was
0: setting up. And so you were quietly building up your consultancy, Pioneer Public Affairs, in 2019, 20. You launched officially in 2021. What made you make that jump in a world of many specialists, government affairs, public affairs, strategic comms, firms, aren't, surprisingly aren't that many with the real climate and conservation focus. Is that why you want to make the jump and use your experience on the Hill?
1: Well, so it's interesting. The, I'd started the business climate initiative, which was a C4, and really the trajectory that I had intended to take was a little different. Then ultimately, where it's gone today, but that's you know it's, you take advantage of opportunities as they come. But I'd gotten to the point where you know I was setting this up, and and like the thesis that I was bringing to this early on was that there were businesses out there that that wanted to solve the climate crisis, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just about your environment, social, and governance score on. You know, sustainalytics or MS, you know, CI or CDP. There was more to it than just signaling to investors that you care. There was an intention to go and solve the problem, and I'd gotten to the point where, if I was going to get it off the ground, I needed to be asking people for money. And I couldn't do that inside the Senate, so right. I really put a lot of time and effort into going through and t- you know, I, and I talked to some of the bigger firms, whether it was Morgan Stanley or J.P. Morgan, to say, "Hey, you guys have an interest here." I think one of the thing that I was a little disappointed in is that it seemed like most people were interested in getting credit for trying to solve the climate crisis right. than actually solving the climate crisis, and I think that's one thing that obviously you know distinguishes and sets Hannon apart from many, many, if not most others but at the end of the day what i realized was the electric vehicle community was a perfect combination of decarbonizing the number one emitting sector in the economy but doing it in a way that's good for business it was a, it was a place where we, we could bring in a lot of folks who uh, not only cared about it but it was in their business interest to solve this problem and so now we have 60 companies that are you know if you think about the utilities that are providing the power the charging companies that are powering the vehicles critical minerals, battery manufacturers, recyclers, um, and then obviously the OEMs like, you know, Tesla and Rivian, Lucid. more. So, so that's
0: actually, I mean, you set up Pioneer Public Affairs, yep. which is our consultancy. But then at the same time, you were just referring to you also launched the Zero Emissions Transportation Association or Z- Zeta. Zeta. Zeta.
1: Zeta, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, so that's kind so of how, you how it came were, together. So you've
0: done the business climate initiative, knew what it would take to stand up kind of a business advocacy group. Yep. You needed the firm to do that and work with clients in these space. And then you saw a white space opportunity. Yeah, there are EV trade associations, but no pure play, right? And these emerging yep. companies and the ecosystem of other suppliers to support them. So you said, oh, summer of 2020, I'm going to quietly yeah. build this and launch it. because Starting in get-
1: April. But actually, so Zeta is a subsidiary of the business. So I had the C4 okay. already started. And so in part, it gave us the opportunity to quickly ramp and get going. And then once we had a little more capital behind us. We started the C3, which is the the Zeta Education Fund, which allows us to do some other foundation-based public uh, education, that sort of thing. But, you know, it was a really timely um, opportunity to go and do something that I cared a lot about. And, you know, there was strong support for And now, you know, we've got a a pretty good-sized coalition now, you know, 60-plus companies. I think one of the things that created the opening is that in the past, kind of the big three autos, and I know you've got a a history in the auto space, there was an ebb and a flow. Like there were years in the nineties, even late eighties, where they were leaning into EVs. Then they well, would for compliance reasons. Right. And then the <laughs> pendulum would swing back. Yeah. And and I think a lot of the EV community kind of grew to this level where they needed their own voice. Sure. And they felt like they were being governed by some of the bigger incumbent players in the space. And that's kind of what I think was the breakout opportunity yeah. for folks to have an organization that wasn't going to shy away from emissions and wasn't going to shy away from talking about public health. And if you, you know, if you want to make a public policy argument, you want Congress to do something or the administration to. You have to make a public interest argument. And I think in the past, you know, some of the legacy autos didn't want to talk about pollution or emissions or public health because that reflected poorly on the other ninety eight percent of their business model. Right, and. You know, it kept the EV community from really making much progress because they couldn't make a public interest argument because the big guys didn't want them to. And now we don't have any oil and gas or even oil and gas subsidiaries or you know, folks making internal combustion engine vehicles. And it's freed us up to talk about the merits of pure electrification and emissions reduction. We're gonna get into
0: the future of electric transportation and priorities, you know, having cut my teeth on some of those early plug-in hybrids and pure BEVs uh, with Ford and GM. And, you know, I don't know whether I'm encouraged that 10, 11 years later, we're at this moment where you've got, look what Tesla's done, certainly. Look at, you know, Ford, who I still have a soft spot for, us. you know, put it in their Mustang and their F-150, these iconic vehicles. We're not talking about compliance cars anymore. But I think even back then, we had hoped, you know, perhaps we'd have bigger market share in those 10 years is still only about 5%, right? But we're talking about 2030, what, 100% of new cars is is electrified is the idea, or 50%? What Give us the big, hairy, audacious goal, and then what are the priorities
1: you're focused on to get there? Well, so the organizing principle for Zeta is that we want to reach 100% EV sales by 2030. And that's ambitious, but even that leaves a long tail, right? You've got a fleet that needs to transition over. So, you know, if you think about every vehicle that drives off the line, the assembly line in 2030 or 2031, you know, that's a car pulling up to a gas station in 2050 or 2051. And so even if we meet our goal, which is every vehicle sold is electric by 2030, you've got another 15, 20 years before the fleet fully transitions over. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is important to distinguish is that we believe that incentives in the vehicles need to sell the consumer you know there's been pushes for you know gas powered car bans and you know i think politically that would be a setback for our larger effort if americans felt like they were being told what to do like they need to be able to choose what's right for them and their family so the tax incentives are the most important so the base tax is the 30d credit which is the incumbent $7500 that was included as part of the american recovery and reinvestment act from 2009 and provides a credit for a new car buyer there was a cap though so we put in there a two hundred thousand unit cap. So once Tesla and GM and soon to be Toyota sell two hundred thousand EVs, they then cap. They can't offer consumers any more of the credit. So it's a good way to catalyze specific companies to get them a kind of over the hump for uh, scaling production. But we need to go further, which is you know we need to actually make progress on electrification and drive not only a catalyzing element for startups to get them over the hump, but we need consumers to have the support to fully transition the fleet. You know, the other thing that's in the clean energy tax bill, which I think is like the sleeper issue, is a credit for used EVs. Yeah. And that's important because 70% of Americans are not in the market for a new car. We sell about 15 million new cars every year, but there's 41 million used car sales every year. And so if you are only targeting 30% of the market – then you're really limiting your impact. So I think having a used EV credit is important to turn over the fleet. You reach Americans uh, further down the income scale. And then the question is, how do you prime that market, that secondary market? And it's fleets, it's rentals, it's leases. So the more we can get two to three-year-old vehicles into that secondary market and provide a used EV tax credit, you're going to start to reach a section of the public that is not in the market for a new car and can then experience an EV for the first time. And we found that once you get somebody behind the wheel of an EV, they're ninety five percent likely to never go back. So exposing more and more Americans, it's a better to,
0: experience. It's more, it's more fun. Superior product. Yeah.
1: Even if you're not a gearhead,
0: there's just something about that low end torque that even we're just trying to get on the highway that that's a pleasurable. The quiet whoosh. And it's fun never having to go get an oil change or go to the gas station, too.
1: Yeah, it's torque, performance, fuel savings. We did a report two weeks ago comparing AAA gas prices to the Energy Information Administration electricity prices in each state. So there's like, see, yeah, I think we did 16 to 18 state profiles. It's five to 600% more expensive to fuel your vehicle with gas than is electricity. So it's not only torque and performance and a superior product. There's real savings for consumers. No question. I I think that can't be said enough because,
0: you know, the sticker price on average can be higher. But if you factor in total cost of ownership or you look at leasing, I mean, it's very competitive. And certainly they hold resale value as well. So if you're privileged enough to have an EV and then thankfully there are more options every year, the revolution is upon us. And it does seem... There's no going back. It's just a question of how fast, right?
1: Yep, totally. There's a lot of interest. I think the challenge now has actually hit EV manufacturers and traditional autos all the same, which is there's going to be outstripping demand yeah. for cars, period. Can't get any car right now. Yeah.
0: I didn't realize this, but there's uh, – They're all computers. You know, they need the, all the chips. chips
1: yeah. It's chips, but also there's things that were produced. Parts and components that were made in Ukraine or you've got nickel coming out of – I mean, there's – the global supply chain is so interconnected. There's – I think VW actually shuttered a plant in Europe just because parts and components coming out of Ukraine shut down. So we're going to face more and more of this unless we get a handle on our supply chains, which I know is important for Democrats and Republicans. What's tough
0: about this moment is, you know, with gas prices peaking, I mean, this could be an incredible near-term opportunity for EVs, but they face some of the same challenges of getting any vehicle. So, how to capitalize on that, you know, certainly search Google searches for electric vehicles are, are through the roof and over the last two, three months, and then the availability. And, you know, people, can they wait six months to get it? Yep, Maybe, but... I think it's coming as we get more butts in seats, as they said in the 90s. What about charging? I mean, I think I'm conditioned to think that, and you may disagree, that some of the old stats I remember that it's like 85% of us still, the typical EV driver still charges at home. Most of us drive less than 40 miles a day. The questions about grid strain are will come when there's a lot more EVs mm-hmm. on the road. Certainly fast charging is exciting and we need more fast chargers, but you know, what's the right balance of, certainly we need to build out thoughtfully in specific areas, is, is it just focus on fast charging or what's the right mix of charging as you're, as you're doing all the forecasting and policy?
1: Yeah, so the the way to think about it is, you know, I think 70% of Americans are going to charge at home. Right, so So 70. if you've got a single family home with a garage and a level two charger, that's going to be the best user experience. You know, you're wake up every single day with a full charge. And it's fairly easy to do Manage charging most of these level two chargers, which you can get for, you know, a couple hundred dollars. Um, I got mine on Amazon and I don't have a garage. I'm
0: just running across the uh, <laughs> the lawn at yeah.
1: night. It gets the job done. I just yeah. had
0: the electrician put a 220 dryer outlet on the side of my house and yep. that's all I need.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So you could do managed charging. You can set a timing. You know, I want this to charge between midnight yeah. and 4 a.m. And that's where there's, you know, some utilities will give you a discount for charging. Moving. Nice load to certain parts of the day to hit the valleys of of power demand so that, you know, you, you take advantage of lower pricing. But the question then is like the 30%, that don't have a single family sure. garage. What do they do? They're living in Renter. an urban setting, you know, yeah, multi-unit housing. And that's where, you know, to me, it's important to think through workplace, retail, multifamily, on and off street municipal parking. And those are all typically level two. So Of that gap, so of that 30%, I'm going to give you two percentages, which is maybe not the right way to think about it. But of the gap that we need to close that's not residential, you really want 80 to 90% to be level two chargers. Right. Because, you know, you could get a level two charger. I actually, you know, did these numbers in preparing for the postal service testimony. But, you know, for $2,000, you can get a level two charger. And that includes some installation and other costs. Most families, you know, you could buy one for 500 bucks and put it in your garage and you know, you're not going to get over a thousand. But for municipal fleets or others where you're putting in level two charging, it could cost $2,000. If you want a direct current fast charger, it can be 75 to a hundred thousand. Right. And so there's certain use cases along transportation corridors where you're driving to grandma's house for Thanksgiving and you want to charge now. And those should be fairly distinct though, and isolated in the sense that you know it has to meet that use case cuz most of the time cars are sitting you know for 95% of the day so you know you want to blend so you have the most ubiquitous access to charging possible and so if you were to do all for example with the 7.5 billion that was in the bipartisan infrastructure deal if you did all direct current fast charging all of it you might get 100,000 chargers out of that if you did a blend that was 80 or 90% level 2 which is again you know, much cheaper, maybe 2% to 5% of the cost of direct current fast charging. Right. You might get 4 million chargers out of that same bulk of money. And so it's all about a blend. And is the Biden goal half of – was it 500,000? His is goal Biden is 500,000. So it's actually – you know, I think they'll exceed that. I think okay. they can exceed 500 within his administration – Will that allay
0: the sometimes disingenuous critics and fears of the range anxiety, do you think, when we hit 100,000?
1: I don't, I mean, I actually think there's change anxiety more than change. range anxiety. <laughs> okay. You know, most people, if you were to pull up Google Maps and just type in charging station, I think people would be shocked at how many charging stations there already are. You add 500,000 to a million more, and range is, to me, is not the limiting factor. It is... You Utility know, or a cost. It's just – it's a different experience, right? Yeah. People are – we're so hardwired to say, oh, shoot, I'm low on gas. I need to go and do something about it. And that is like a trip that you make. And yeah. with charging, it's not like an acute – this is a five-minute moment that I am taking care of this one problem. Right. It is – I'm at church. I'm at work. I'm at the grocery store. I happen to prefer it because it's passive, right? This is like right. charging is happening in the background. And it's a little top off, you know. Or a little, yeah, you're you know, topping off. You're doing it here. when you're doing other things in your life. And ideally, it's convenient. and well, It doesn't take much time or thought. But to me, that's – it becomes a normal part of life where you're all of a sudden now not going and having to go make that special trip. You're plugging in at home. You're plugging in at work. You're plugging in at the grocery. And that's what we do here. I mean, we don't we don't have off-street parking in D.C. So, I, you know, I'll plug in at Trader Joe's. You know, I'll leave the car overnight once a month, twice a month. So – when it's more universally accessible, I think hopefully becomes second nature and, you know, people will realize how I, you know, at least believe the way I do that it's far better than going to the gas station and cheaper, obviously. Well, we could talk so much about
0: EVs, but I got some other things yeah, on yeah, the because you wear a lot of hats. So we're sitting here, it's May 3rd. And today we're sitting here in the fate of a federal climate package, clean energy tax incentives, largely in a reconciliation party line bill looks tenuous, to say the least. So what needs to have happened by the time this episode airs to ensure that we don't blow a chance to achieve absolutely crucial and significant emissions reductions to give us a shot at meeting our climate goals and health, a healthy and stable climate and a strong economy by the end of this decade. So there's a lot of ways you could go there, but break it down for those of us and our listeners who are following the swings and something Manchin said here and there, but like what really has to happen? Well,
1: let's say four to five weeks from now. So I'm fast forwarding uh, for listeners four to five weeks. So what I hope that we're doing, you know, if you think about the window that we have, I really think that we need to get something done on the clean energy tax reconciliation package reconciliation being the legislative procedure to afford you the ability to pass something with 50 votes. I think that needs to happen before the 4th of July. So if you think about, you know, when we come back, I believe the Tuesday after Memorial Day is I think May 31st. You know, then we'll be ideally coming to the floor with a plan. So over the next 4 to 6 weeks we need to figure out all right, what is a deal? that Senator Manchin and Cinema and the rest of the Democratic caucus can agree to with the White House. And they need to probably do that in the next couple of weeks. That needs to be done by mid-May, and then you're going to have a week of drafting. You're going to have to have the Joint Committee on Taxation and the Congressional Budget Office score it, right? You've got to go and make all the estimates and projections of what that costs. Then you have the Bird Rule process right. where you have to invite in the Republicans and you litigate procedural and parliamentary. Challenges before the parliamentarian, and you, you know, you litigate oh, those and issues. And all of this
0: takes time and oh, yeah. floor time and, you know, member capacity when we're trying to do a, maybe perhaps a Ukraine package, another COVID package, a bill about America competes. Yeah. So I don't want to dwell too much on why we're here at this moment, year and a half into the Biden presidency. Certainly said a lot of the right things. On climate, we have our challenges with a closely divided Congress. But what could we have done better? Or maybe we should talk about that if, if we, uh, depending on the outcome here, but certainly we could have done some things better to not put ourselves kind of last in line at a, a moment, right?
1: Yeah, we're, yeah. I mean, and th- this goes to your timing question. I think that we need to come to a deal in the next week or two Yeah, to have something that we're going to pass before July 4th. And so hopefully as this episode airs, We've spent that four to six-week intervening period drafting a bill, burning the right, bill. Right, we're ironing and, it out. And yeah. we're on the floor, right? This ideally, we're on the floor, you know, mid-June and, and we're able to meet these deadlines. You know, I think the number one thing, I mean, we have kept setting climate aside. Yes. so And there's been many, many junctures, right? So the very first out of the gates, I think many people thought, including myself, reconciliation as a parliamentarian or legislative procedure is tough. Doing that two times, three times in a single Congress extraordinarily. It's messy. A lot of votes, a lot of rules. Many of us thought we should just do one bill early on in the Congress, January, February of 21, and have that be the big achievement that carries us through. We end up doing the rescue plan, which was just limited to COVID, obviously, you know, justified priority in its own right. But then we went to the American jobs plan and the American families plan. And those kind of got introduced in an inelegant sequence where the American jobs plan was like plan a, and it included infrastructure and climate. And then the families plan got introduced because I think, you know, there was pressure at the front for the white house to be like, Hey, what about the other stuff on the social side? Do you not care about that? And so then the families plan was kind of introduced as a, Oh yeah, that too. And then we had all of that, kind of upended by the bipartisan infrastructure plan. So, both of those were set aside to do just the quote-unquote hard infrastructure, which is the easy stuff, right? Right. The, pl- the things Roads you- and bridges.
0: Right. Transportation. But I mean, I, there's yep. some good stuff in there, no question, but that's kind of regular order stuff, right? We pass transportation yep. bills every five
1: years, right? So, then we left the hard stuff for later, and now this is the later, right? And yeah. I think this interplay between the families plan and the climate priorities has been – tough for the Democrats generally because you're kind of pitting your friends against each other. Right. Right. You know, there's some people that care more about climate, some that care more about elder care and child tax care, all important issues, but you kind of threw into the mix this really difficult churn that Democrats have had a hard time litigating and now it's, are we willing to take something or do we want to go into the midterms and put climate on the shelf again? And and I think many of us believe that it's not. Hey, we'll do this next year. That this is, you know, if we're not doing it now, then we lose a decade or more that we can't afford to lose. Going back to Waxman Markey, I yeah, mean, we've had a decade where we've
0: last were this close. I just think the White House really needs to get involved here. I was was I was driving here. I had an I found an old water bottle from the Biden Harris campaign. And it said "Secure a Clean Energy Future." This was maybe even before "Build Back Better" of the slogans. I'm like. It's perfect time for that message. Uh, it was always a good time. And uh, let's find the courage to do this and get it across the line. And what's the operative phrase
1: here? Take the deal, make a deal. Take the deal. And I think the administration, they need to do this for a number of reasons. One, they ran on it. I, I yes. think it is hard to overestimate how many uh, folks who fought for this administration see climate as the top priority. But two... They've really made a huge mistake on the solar tariff issue. Yeah. They're on the precipice of overseeing the biggest contraction in renewable energy in history. And so, you know, maybe, you know, they can fix the tariff issue, but they certainly got to climb out of the hole for renewable energy and they need these tax credits to do it. There's been a lot of headwinds for this administration, COVID, Ukraine, Russia. There's just been so many impediments. This is one where – we can do something about it. Like this isn't under our control. I think some of that stuff, there's many tough choices. Right. This one should be easy.
0: Yeah. I want to come back to, um, you've been working in politics almost what, almost
1: 20 years yeah. now? Well, yeah, next year will be 20 years, yeah. So
0: as a hardened political veteran, like what gives you hope when there's a lot of darkness on the edges?
1: Well, I, I wish it was our political system that was giving me <laughs> hope. Um, but, it, it, you know, I think the thing that, I'm most excited about, you know, in some ways the ascendant startups, you know, and we do a lot of that work. I mean, companies that are really challenging incumbents and doing things in more efficient or more sustainable ways, you know, that's to me pretty compelling and exciting work. And so, you know, the market is full of innovators and there's a lot of opportunity, whether it's carbon capture decarbonization renewable energy steel production there's smart people racing ahead to figure out answers to some of these questions right and I, and I think where we fit in is to take those folks that your average member of Congress probably doesn't know about this breakthrough or right. this innovation so it you know to me it's exciting to be able to just to go and expose people to new uh, innovative technologies that could really change things and then you know obviously you sometimes have, you know, hey, if we did this tax provision in a little different way, it could really catalyze the industry or really solve these problems here. So you're, you're taking what is already identifiable goal for a member or a committee and saying, here's a way that with some awareness and some foresight, we can do better. And so that's what really kind of gets me going. I, I think, you know, from a partisan standpoint, there's actually some really good members like Senator Braun from Indiana. He's one that uh, uh-huh. I think, you know, many people were uh, excited about uh, his conservation. He also, to give you, I guess, the diversity in thought. He also voted to uh, not certify the election. But then you've got incoming members like Senator Marshall from Kansas, big right. one um, state. Yeah, so I think there's enough members where there's a strong kind of center. But I think the challenge is, and I think you know, right now there's these discussions of bipartisan climate bills. I don't know that the center is big enough where there's ten Republicans that are going to join Democrats on climate. You know, ideally that changes over time. I think there's nothing like a thousand new jobs in your district to change your bias about any given policy or or issue or idea. But this is a chance for us to do something really meaningful. I actually think, ironically, many Republicans, they don't want to be in the bind of overseeing a huge contraction in the space. They know that's not good for their communities. Um, It's not good for the youth vote under 40. Exactly. But also there's a lot of ranchers. You can get $15,000 a year – for having a wind turbine on your farm, right? Yeah. And you might have 10 of them. So there's a diverse coalition of folks that I think want to see progress be made. I think many Republicans quietly want the Democrats to pass reconciliation in some ways to take it off the table, extend these tax credits for a long time, not leave the problem to them. To them. And then you have probably some like McConnell that are happy to accuse Democrats of socialism and you know right. want, to, want Democrats to pass the bill for that reason. But I do think that even Republicans are looking back Democrats are like, hey, get your act together here. Like, we can't do this forever. <laughs> can, you, can you pass something and move on? Oh, boy,
0: from your lips. Let's turn to our hot seat. Yeah. So first one is fill in the blank. The most important advice I have followed is? Get the small things right. And the most important feedback or advice I have rejected
1: is? I think people tend to micromanage. A lot. And I think like if you read like management books, it's like you need to you need to be kind of the master of your domain. And and I think giving your staff and your team room to lead is really, really important. And I think, you know, some of the early management books didn't necessarily encourage that sort of leadership. And I think giving people room to breathe and to be creative and to lead is important. What's the best
0: analogy or idiom or metaphor about politics that you heard and
1: would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, so there was a guy, Andrew Patsman, that worked for Mike Enzi, and when I was with Senator Ben Nelson, he was one of my closest counterparts on the Republican side, but I loved uh, Mike Enzi's quote. He was a shoe salesman before being elected to the Senate, and his quote was, you never waste time between the sale and the cash register. (laughs) And I think with our, hopefully we reach that moment, and there's a sale on climate, and we rush to the cash register and get it done. Good stuff. How do you connect with nature personally? So it's really tough in D.C. Uh, We live in the city in part because you're you're driving for a long time. In the city, the kids, like it's just so important for the kids to get outside. So, you know, we take advantage of the parks and the playgrounds. In Nebraska, where I'm from, it was fishing, it was hiking. My wife and I, our vacations, which we don't take a ton of, but almost always is to Montana. So we'll go to Chico or Yellowstone or... Glacier, uh, Flathead Lake, Kalispell, Whitefish, like that's where we like to break free from our phones and obligations. And obviously, you know, we're hoping the kids are getting to the age where they can join us and enjoy those experiences. But it's a challenge, I think, you know, and also we get so addicted to the news and our phones and updates. You know, you need to find those opportunities to break free.
0: Good stuff, especially given what we do and what we're fighting for. Who's your climate role model or hero?
1: I have to say it's Mark Udall. He was the person most connected to nature in a way that he still had the ability and the drive to do something about it. But the Udalls have such a a huge family legacy. And Mark is – he's almost inhumanly kind and caring and like – but, you know, has the power and the authority to do something about it. So Mark is my North Star on climate for sure. What are the top three books you – have read recently
0: are about climate that you'd recommend for our readers?
1: You know what I really like um, is The Big Burn, and it's a cool story about the origins of the Forest Service and how early on we started the Forest Service as a way to defeat, and we thought that was like a achievable goal, was we were going to defeat forest fires. And I think that's now one of, and ultimately over time it became different, it became managing the land and and landscape scale restoration and watershed protection, all sorts of things now that we can use our forests to do. But in looking back, it was kind of, you know, that was the failure. And this was like the Forest Service, there was a time where we considered it a failure that they hadn't defeated wildfire. Hmm. And I think now in the climate context, we see that as one of the more remarkable and visible signs that climate is worsening. I think that's a really cool book for folks to read and a little historical, which is is nice. Awesome. One last thing that
0: we'd like to ask all our guests. Finish this sentence. To me, climate positive
1: means? An environment and an economy where everybody's better off. And that's totally achievable. And we see evidence of it, but, you know, with these, if we could invest in these clean energy tax credits, it's not asking anybody to sacrifice. You know, it's not pointing the blame at anybody. This is literally going out and saying, we're going to invest in the sectors of our economy. pro primed.
0: pro-America. Yep, prime democracy.
1: Exactly. <laughs> pro-capitalism. Yeah, this is not this reordering of American society. This is saying, let's leverage our strengths to make everybody better off. Right. Well, on that note, Joe, thank you for coming in. Thanks, Gil. This is awesome. Appreciate what Hannah's doing.
0: Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify, which really helps us get more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosipod or email us at ClimatePositive at HannonArmstrong.com. I'm Gil Jenkins, and this is Climate Positive.